scripture is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It's the eighth sermon in a series in 1 Peter and the second in a three-part series on Christian community. And my sermon's title this morning is Growth in Grace. The idea of growth is that things improve or get better over time. For example, investments grow as, as their value increases, as the economy does better, as the market improves, and that's the goal. Or if you own a home, the idea is that your home increases in value, it grows in its value. If you're into sports or you play on a sports team, if you're a basketball player, growth looks like improving your skills or your free throw percentage, for example. Or if you're on the track and, in track and field, your times get faster over the course of not only a season, but even your running career. Year over year, you're looking for improvement and growth. I remember as a child, I couldn't wait to grow. I thought that someday I might be as tall as my dad or as my mom. Um, so uh, now I'm taller because you also decrease in stature as you age. Churches love growth too. More attenders or more financial gifts show that a church is improving. But the problem is not all growth is good. For instance, food left unattended in the back of the refrigerator or bread in the back of the cupboard also grows quite nicely, actually, I know from experience. On a more serious note, if you become ill or sick, particularly with cancer, that's a growth that must be stopped or it could end your life. Fines and penalties grow as the law is broken. It's tax season and we're discovering this very personally. We owe some money. And even church, churches grow sometimes not for the best reason, not because they're improving, but because the message had been so watered down or compromised the people are flocking to hear something that they want to hear, but not which God wants them to hear. No matter how large a church is, if God is displeased, the growth isn't good. And growth is a central factor in our salvation. But as I've pointed out, it needs to be the right kind of growth. As I mentioned, we've begun a series of messages on Christian community and I showed you last Sunday the central place that genuine love should have in each one of our lives. This morning, I want to talk about growth, particularly growth in grace. How does a church, how do you as individual believers, how does God want us to grow? First and foremost, it's not in numbers, it's not in financial giving, or even in ministries or service, but first and foremost, we must grow in grace. What you're going to see from the Bible today is that growth in grace is essential for your health as an individual believer, but also essential for our health as a congregation. When congregations begin to die, what's happened is that the individual believers have ceased to grow in God's grace, and corporately, as a community, we have ceased to grow in God's grace. So let's begin then by reading God's word and asking him to help us to learn what he has for us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3, the eternal word of God. So put away all malice and all deceit 
and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we have read your word. We pray now that you would speak to us through the preacher, that the words of my mouth, the thoughts, reflections, questions, and preoccupations of our hearts and minds would be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So churches need to grow in grace. What are the factors of church growth? These are my points for this morning. The first factor of church growth is the brotherhood. The right kind of growth, growing in grace, must happen in the context of a community. So the brotherhood, which is Peter's technical term for the church, is the place where we have to grow. It sounds a little redundant to say in order for churches to grow, churches need to grow together, but that's what I'm saying for the first point. It's that important and it's that neglected. Remember, Peter calls the church the brotherhood in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And also in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, resist him, that is Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. And in 1 Peter 4, we're told to be devoted to the brotherhood. So the brotherhood is a way of talking about the church. Now the Greek word for brotherhood means two people who share the same womb, wombmates, if you will. And so brothers, physical brothers, are two men who share the same mother. The brotherhood in, in the Bible, as a term for the church, is a spiritual way of talking about the fact that we share the same womb, if you will, of Almighty God the Father. The Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. We've learned this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And it's the new birth that we saw in last week that gives rise to genuine love amongst the brotherhood. And so, because of God's grace, we now share a common tie that's akin to family ties. In some ways, it's stronger than and more important than your family ties. This can be the source of great trouble or consternation because as you begin to seek to grow as a Christian, you're leaning into the church. You're leaning into the community of the faithful. You're hanging out with Christian friends. And this means that some of the connections, even the traditions, 1 Peter 1.17, 1 Peter 4.1-3, the traditions, the practices, your habits of your old life begin to fade. And so some of the expectations of your parents specifically, or your grandparents, your aunts, uncles, cousins, nieces, nephews, they want the old you back. And so you're somewhat torn or divided. You want to honor your family, but at the same time, you have a new identity in Christ, the brotherhood, which is where genuine growth must take place. And so there's a division there. And not only that, it isn't just difficult because of the division. God has called you as you grow amidst the brotherhood in the church to, to be a witness 
a meaningful witness, a presence in your family. So he doesn't want you to cease, if, if possible, to cut off all ties. He doesn't, that's not God's will for you. He saves you so that you might bring the light and love of the Lord to your natural family connections to elevate that your family actually might begin to grow in grace. And by the way, young people, this, this goes upstream. It isn't just for parents who are called to lovingly establish a gracious family culture in the home that honors Christ. It is, it is incumbent upon parents to do that. But children can establish the same thing for their parents. As I say, it can flow upstream as well. Parents loving their children is like water running downstream. And children, in a Christ-like manner, loving their parents and setting example in Christ for their parents is like water flowing upstream. So the brotherhood is where genuine love is shown. Just for review, look again at 1, 22 and 23. Having purified your souls, 1 Peter 1, 22, by your, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So Peter makes it clear that salvation is not an individual experience. When you're saved, you're saved into a community. You're part of a community. Peter talks about this. Peter talks about this when he says, we have been born again. So the man writing the letter, the apostle Peter, the great Peter, the leader of the apostles, puts himself on the level of every other Christian that would ever read this letter and say, I'm no different than you. I too have been born again. We have been born again to a living hope. This is a common salvation. And not only is it a common salvation, but the church is the common place where growth takes place. Look at the way he describes himself in 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. So though he could throw his weight around as the great St. Peter, he simply speaks as a, as a fellow elder, as, as one of the leaders amongst the church. And he's appealing to them in that common way. So the church is the place where fellow elders, fellow brothers in Christ, lead fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the brotherhood, which is the community of the faithful. Growing in grace takes place in the church. Christianity is not an individual sport. The second growth factor that we see here is not only the brotherhood that we need to grow in the context of the church, but secondly, we need to put away sin. And this brings us specifically to our text. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 2, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Put away sin. Not only do you need a community in order to grow, but this community needs to be a place where each of us individually and together are working to remove sin from amongst us. Commentator I. Howard Marshall here says that Peter has already described the need for genuine love amongst the members of the church. But such love can only exist when its opposing motives and practices 
are removed and eliminated. So the climate for the genuine love of 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, in order for that to happen requires a kind of atmosphere or climate in which sin is actively being removed. If not, then we're trying to do two things that are pulling in opposite directions. We're trying to love one another sincerely from a pure heart, having been born again and sanctified or consecrated by obedience to the truth, on the one hand, and on the other hand, we're piling up our sins. It's impossible because the sin spoken of in verse 1 of chapter 2 is the very sin which you are removing by obeying the truth in 122. So it's the obedience to the truth that leads us, you see, to remove the sin. There's an organic connection. As we remove sin from amongst us, that's negative. The positive of genuine love can flourish and thrive. Now Peter mentions five specific sins and I'm not going to break them down in great detail, but I will describe them briefly. Malice is a general word for evil. It's a catch-all. So all that's evil, all that's unholy, I'm reminded here when Peter said, be holy for I am holy. Malice is a kind of opposite to holiness. And in the community, evil of any kind needs to be put away. It needs to be removed. The second sin that's mentioned is deceit. Now the word here, deceit, isn't strictly speaking lying. It's lying or it's telling someone some information in a shady manner. It's, it's misrepresenting who you are or what you're doing. The deceit described here in verse 1 is the very deceit which Jesus was told, we told that Jesus has no deceit. First, look at uh, 2 Peter 2, 22. Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. How can we as the body of Christ practice deceit when Christ, the head of the body, had no deceit? And when we practice deceit, when we're caught lying or we find ourselves misrepresenting ourselves or trying to take advantage by practicing an underhanded method of some kind, particularly in the fellowship of believers, when we do this, we're, we're completely denying the Lord of glory who died for these very sins. The third sin that's mentioned here is hypocrisy. This means, you may have heard this before, this is a word that comes from the stage. It literally means a mask. So hypocrisy in the fellowship of believers, the, the, there's no place for representing yourself in a way that isn't really true in the brotherhood. Now, there's a place for modesty. We don't share every sin with every person we meet. But there needs to be a clear connection with who people know you to be in the fellowship and who you really are. Hypocrisy. And envy is the next one that's mentioned. Another word for this is jealousy. It's wanting something, coveting something that belongs to someone else. So, if you see, if you're a woman and you see another woman in the church that has something or or has accomplished certain things, or even her family, or her looks, and you covet that as a woman, you are envying and you are destroying the brotherhood 
And genuine love cannot thrive until you repent of that. If you're a man and you covet or envy or jealous another man's situation or income or status or accomplishments or his family, there is no place for that, brothers, in the fellowship. You see, genuine love depends on the fact that you're not trying to take what God has given to someone else and not given to you. Well, why do I have to do this? Why am I struggling with this? Why can't I do this? That kills grace and churches that have envy and hypocrisy and malice and lying are not growing churches. They're definitely not growing in grace. And then the last one that's mentioned is slander. And the irony here is in 1 Peter 3.16, the enemies of God are slandering the Christians and Peter says, you need to stop slandering one another. See, the whole message of Peter is that we are called to be a unique, distinguished, distinct people of God. We're called to be like a lighthouse in a dark world. Not separated from the world in every way. We're in the midst of the world, separated from the sin of the world, but shining the light in the communities in which we live, in the workplaces, in the political spheres in which we move. And so if we are slandering one another, which is another way of saying backstabbing, backbiting, gossiping, malicious words, speaking against, undermining, character assassination, all of these things, if we're doing this to one another in the church, or if we're practicing this in the church and turning a blind eye as one another slanders other people, then we are definitely not growing in grace. These are the vices of the church that spoil genuine love and they kill the growth in grace that we must experience not just to survive but to thrive in Christ. Now I want to point out something here that the text tells us we need to do with these sins. The ESV says you must put them away. That's worth underlining. Put away. Put it away. This term put away is part of a larger concept in the New Testament that might more literally be rendered, take it off. Take these off. These sins are represented as kind of clothing. And what the Apostle Peter is saying is that you need to remove these articles of clothing. You need to take them off. You need to put them away. The Puritan pastor Alexander Nisbet explains it this way. The metaphor is taken from a man putting off an old suit of clothes. Can you picture that? An old suit of clothes, which, if he continued to wear them, would be both hurtful and disgraceful. So the metaphor put away is taken from the idea of a man taking off an old suit of clothes, which if he were to continue to wear them, it'd be both hurtful and disgraceful. But the man is unwilling to shed these garments, even though they're old, and uh, Nisbet says, full of filth and vermin. So... 
I don't know about you guys, but I have certain articles of clothing that are important to me, you know, like a t-shirt that I wore in college. It's important, and it's still in great shape as far as I'm concerned. But my wife doesn't necessarily agree with me about these articles of clothing. So they are either not to be worn or to be tossed. Those are my only two options. In a, po in a more positive note, but showing how unwilling we are to give things up at times, when our children reached a certain age, we would, to encourage them to sleep on their own, take away their sleep aid, and that would have been either a blanket or a teddy bear. So they're four, five, maybe six years old, and we promised them at this age, we said, we're not throwing away the blankie. We're putting it away for a little while. It was a scene of tears and pain and hardship. And some of these sleep aids had become kind of raggedy by that point, a little stinky too, even perhaps a health hazard. Didn't matter. There's a, just to take a quick survey of some other places in the Bible where this important idea of putting away shows up, take a look at James 1.21. Just turn back a couple of pages. We just finished an in-depth study of James last year, and James and Peter have a lot of overlap, and so it's helpful when we're reading Peter to see places in the book of James where there's uh, similarities or tie-ins. And right at the heart of James, in James 1, 18 to 21, which is the very heart of James's little letter, we read this in verse 21. Well, I'll start at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. There's the new birth that Peter's talking about. Know this, my beloved brothers. There's the brotherhood. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So here we see James is portraying the calling of the Christian to live a righteous life, in fact, to produce righteousness in your lives. And he's saying anger is one of those things which typically doesn't do that. So he says, therefore, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Instead, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So going back to the image of a man in an old suit of clothes that are filthy and shameful and infested with vermin, I'd hate to see that suit. It's not enough simply to take off the old clothing of our sin, to put it away, to put it off. That leaves you naked and you can't go anywhere. Instead, you not only have to remove what is vile and unclean, and unholy, you, you need to then be reclothed with what is good, true, and beautiful. I love how Jesus explains this in Luke 11, 24 to 26. It's the story of the unclean spirit that was looking for a place to stay. I'll just read it to you. This is Luke eleven twenty four. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You see, if you simply put off your sin and clean house and tidy up and rearrange and make the bed and all that stuff, but you don't have new residents in the home, godly, faithful friends, godly, faithful virtues, then you're going to be left exposed and that clean and orderly house will be possessed again, Jesus is saying, with seven worse spirits than the first. See, it's not enough just to put it off. You need to put on the glory of God. Romans 13, 12, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness, put them off, take them off, and put on the armor of light, he says. What this means is that nature, as in the realm of man, so in the realm of the spirit, nature abhors a vacuum. In place of the love-destroying sins that Peter mentions, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, in place of these five love-destroying, community-destroying, grace-defeating sins, we need to put in their place love-affirming sins, genuine love that helps us grow in grace. So love doesn't act in an evil manner, treating other people maliciously, but love treats other people for their good. Love doesn't practice cunning, trickery. Love doesn't wear a mask, pretending that you're someone that you're not. Love is honest and open-handed in its dealings and humble about who we really are. Love doesn't desire to be better than other people, to destroy them, to take what they have, that they've worked for, that God has blessed them with, that they didn't earn. Love celebrates and praises when other people have good things happen to them, even though you don't. So growth factor number two, putting away sin. Growth factor number three is desire for the word. Growth in grace is essential for a Christian and for a Christian church, a community. This kind of growth has to happen communally together that's the brotherhood and it requires a negative work and it's a difficult work the old pastors called this mortification dying to our sin putting away our sin finally though it requires you to desire the word we see this in verses two and three of the text like newborn infants long for i'm I'm saying desire earnestly desire The pure spiritual milk. The King James here has the milk of the word, which is a good gloss. So that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Desire for the word is what fuels growth. It also, by the way, is what fuels your ability to kill your sin. Because in a garden... Plants and weeds can't grow together. If it's filled with vegetables and flowers and all kinds of other things, there's, no, there's not a lot of room for the weeds to grow. Likewise, as we're craving and desiring the Word of God, we will indeed grow 
and grace. So why do we desire the word? First of all, it says because it is milk. Now the, the actual phrase is pure spiritual milk, and this, this bears some discussion. The word spiritual probably refers to the idea of a, of a metaphor. Spiritually speaking, the word is like milk. I think that's what he says there. So how is the word like milk? Well, he's saying that it's the milk that a baby desires. So what are we to learn from that? If the word is like the, the food that a baby desires, then the word is basic. The word is also essential for life. Uh, breast milk is not something that a child can do without. It's not like an option. It's essential for the baby's life. And so it's also basic. It's not, doesn't have a lot of frills to it. It is the basic ingredient for life for a baby and it is essential for life for a baby. And so this is how we are to read the word, in other words. We're not to necessarily go on to theological degrees and deep philosophical discussions about eschatology and all of these other fancy things. There's nothing wrong with, with in-depth study of the Scriptures. But while milk in some places in the Bible is criticized, we're supposed to leave behind the immature things and go on to the mature things. Here, the milk that's being described is the basics of the Gospel, which is to say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's not something that you will ever stop learning it actually is something that you can lose while you're pursuing your deeper theological truths. Many a seminary student, and I've met some of them, have gone to seminary and have abandoned a faith in Bible school. Many a pastor in pursuit of a D-man or a PhD in all of his wisdom and erudition has lost track of the prize. In fact, I read about a book that's been recently published by a woman who started going to a series of Bible studies that her pastor was holding in which he systematically proceeded to attempt to destroy and derail every one of the basic tenets of the Apostles' Creed. And at the end of this multi-week study, this is what the summary of the book says, at the end of the study, the pastor said, well, I guess I'm just sort of kind of a depressed agnostic. The pastor said this. Well, here's a man who lost track and stopped feeding like a baby on the pure milk of the word. You see, the gospel isn't just the thing that gets you started in the Christian life. Unlike breast milk, which you can't survive on for more than a little while, the milk of the word is what you live on in the Christian life and what you need essentially in order to grow in grace. So why is it then that in the realm of human eating, we need to graduate to more complex food groups other than breast milk? But in the realm of spiritual growth, milk is our diet the whole way. How does that work? Why is it that when it comes to children, we want them to have more and more advanced palates and diets, but when it comes to spiritual children, 
It's just the gospel. How does that work? Well, as I thought about this, and maybe you have some thoughts here, here's what I came up with. When Jesus shared the gospel, he said, unless you repent and become like a little child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. There's something radically childlike about entry into heaven that requires us to fight against the effects of aging. You know, grumpiness, stuck in our ways, stubbornness, opinionated, certainty, in some senses certainty, when we're talking about being certain of your own opinion. And that childlike, open, humble attitude, the awe of discovery, the simplicity That's the sort of food that's going to help you live and survive and persevere, and not just survive, but thrive in the Christian life. I've quoted this from the pulpit actually several times. One of my favorite Christian artists, deceased, Rich Mullins, has a song, and he says, we have sinned and grown old. And in his poem, he's equating age and sin, and I think Peter is doing the same thing. The old people let the reader understand, are malicious and deceitful. They're hypocrites and envious and slanders. They've learned how to survive in the church. They know how the system works. And they are killing the church. But the fresh-faced believer who comes in saying, Jesus died for me. He rose again from the dead. And I want to share it with all my friends. This is the joy of salvation that belongs to an infinite Christ and which we need to maintain throughout our entire lives in Christ. It's spiritual milk. But it's also pure milk. This word pure, by the way, is the opposite of deceit. Think of it this way. The word deceit means adulterated. The word pure means means unadulterated. The word deceit means mixed. The word pure means unmixed. The word deceit means defiled. The word pure means undefiled. So the growth we need comes from an undefiled, unadulterated, and unmixed gospel. You don't need lots of extra things packed into your gospel. You need Jesus lived the perfect life that you could never live. You need He obeyed the law perfectly in your place. You need His righteous life was for you. You need He died on the cross and hung there agonizing under the wrath of God for hours paying the penalty, fully paying the penalty until he said it is finished. And then you need this. He rose again from the dead on the third day, destroying the the chains of death for you and me. That's what you need. And any other impurity, any other opinion from the pastor or from the commentator or from the pundit in society that's commenting on this, that, or the other, anything else, 
that defiles or purifies your gospel will retard your growth in grace. The growth in grace that you need is from the simple gospel, the gospel of salvation. You know, in the ancient world, it wasn't uncommon for for people to mix their wine or their milk with water because things were scarce. And what Peter is saying is that this wine, this water is unmixed. I'm reminded of the miracle performed at Cana, the wedding at Cana. The wine that Jesus made by his word, by his command, was better than the wine that they had served. And it was newly made. It had tasted as if it was like an aged Bordeaux, whatever that is. The pure wine, the pure milk of the word. When Jesus' disciples were away at one point and they came back and said, Jesus, we brought lunch for you. He says, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So beware religious traditions in your church. In this church, beware traditions. Beware preachers who are more fond of their opinions or who are simply interested in mimicking yours, telling you what you want to hear rather than the pure milk of the word. And as you read the word, beware your own biases. When you're reading the scriptures, seek the milk of the word, the pure, unmixed milk of the word. And finally, on this point, the growth factor is the word of God, craving the word of God. Notice that you have tasted that the Lord is good in verse 3. You see, the Word is the way that you meet Almighty God. It's not just an exercise that you check off in the morning. Reading the Word by the power of the Holy Spirit introduces you into the presence of the triune God. And in reading the Word in faith, you strengthen your union and communion with the ascended Christ. Jesus' presence is in the Word. That's what this verse is telling us. If indeed you have tasted, not that the Word is good, he's quoting Psalm 34, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here's the way this works. Salvation is, co- is the beginning of your communion with the Lord. Communion means a kind of mingling of heart and mind. It doesn't separate the creature-creator distinction. You're still flesh He's still Almighty God, the uncreated God. But there is a mystical union and communion by faith between the believer and Almighty God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died for your sins to effect that fellowship, that unity. And He not only does it for you, but He does it for the whole church, the body of Christ. And He does it through the Word. This is the gospel that was preached to you, verse 25 of chapter 1. It is delivered by the power of the Holy Spirit, Chapter 1 and verse 12. It is the uncreated, unshakable Word of God. The grass withers and the glory of man, it fades away. And so God communicates Himself to His people through the Word. Almighty God and the preached Word of God, the Gospel, comes into your life and you don't just hear it, you experience the presence of God as Christ is preached And the gospel is proclaimed from the pulpit through the word of God. You taste 
that God is good when you hear that the gospel is true. And so what we're seeing here is that growth in grace means that you experience God in the Word. It is the Lord of the Word when you're reading the Word of the Lord. Here's how Clowney, actually a famous commentator, but one of my professors and pastors and my internship advisor, in his commentary on 1 Peter, he says, reading the Bible is addictive when we begin to get the taste. What we taste in Scripture is not simply the variety and power of language. What we taste is the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, as I conclude this morning in his amazing book, Not the Sin, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga describes sin as the disturbance of God's shalom. He calls it the vandalism of God's shalom. And we've had some vandalism on the church building a couple of times. You can picture someone who, who's tagged a car or tagged a wall with spray paint, graffiti, maybe a statue, defacing it or defiling it in some way. And what we see here in this passage before us this morning is the vandalism of the church. Now, it's not a rock thrown through the window. It's not somebody trying to jimmy open a door or, or spray paint some hate speech on, on the wall. No, the vandalism of the church happens when the people of God deface the community of the faithful, the brotherhood, by these besetting sins that are described, these and others. And the hope and the redemption of the church, when it's marred by sin, slowly destroys. And in the book of Revelation, we're told that that lampstand is removed. But the message for us this morning is more hopeful. The message for us this morning is you have been born again by an unshakable, enduring word. And that word has brought into your very life the presence of the triune God. And that has given you a desire for genuine love. But we have some preliminary work to do which is to take off those old garments, these sins that so easily entangle, so that we can run with endurance the race set before us. So as we conclude then this morning, here are some suggestions. Remember when you read the Scriptures today and this week, that the Word of the Lord is the Lord of the Word. Two, milk means basics, and that's sufficient. You never want to graduate from milk when it comes to this aspect of the Christian life. Number three, there is a kind of false repentance that you must be aware of. Hebrews 6 warns us of this. As you seek to put away these sins, make sure that you're truly desiring the Lord of the Word, or you might be caught up in superficial or even false repentance. And four, no matter how mature you are in your faith, you need to grow up into your salvation so that by the milk of the word you may grow up into salvation, Peter says. Like a flower leans toward the sun, it's springtime. So we as Christians must lean towards the Lord of the word that we can become fully mature Christians, putting off these sins and loving one another in community. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you have made yourself present in your word and reminded us that the word of the Lord is indeed the Lord of the word.
forgive us for our sins. Once again, we pray. Give us fresh desire to pursue genuine repentance as we grow in our salvation by feeding on Christ, the gospel of the word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.